Well, good morning, fellow worms. Did you pick up on that in the song, right? Uh, that got changed in modern hymnology, but uh, we kind of like the original version. Uh, reminds us of why we just took the Lord's Supper and uh, what is truly of value on this earth above all things. I have to cover the whole book of First Kings. If you're looking at my notes, you know that it's full and I have a lot to do. And uh, already Vegas odds are not on me finishing, but I'm going to get it done. I want to start with an introductory comment about biblical history. Um, and it's in the notes if you have them. And it is, I, I wrote this, biblical history is less interested in geopolitical details. That is grasshoppers. That's from Isaiah chapter 40, where when God is defending himself, he calls humanity grasshoppers. He's less interested in geopolitical details and more interested in geo-redemptive details and events, and I called him the grasshopper flicker. I don't know if you've ever, I, I grew up on a street in New Haven, Indiana. Uh, we weren't uh, too sophisticated. It, there was a sign at the head of my street said dead end. It didn't say cul-de-sac, it was a dead end. At the end of the dead end street was a field. That field was called our playground. I broke my arm in that field when I was a child ice skating. I got stitches in that field playing tag. It's just a wonderful place to be, the field. Mom, where are you going, son? I'm going to the field. That's how we grew up, and, and the field had tall grass, and we played cowboys and Indians and cops and robbers, and I shot you, no you didn't, it, it missed me, you know, and then we'd fist fight, and it was, a, it was a wonderful childhood, and there were grasshoppers in the field, some of those great big ones, the ones that you think are going to, you know, and when one landed on you, you did this, you flicked it, and in Isaiah chapter 40, God is the grasshopper flicker, and that's what humanity looks like before him. When you open your Bible and you look at Old Testament history, you are viewing the redemptive power of the Creator, and he is more interested in what I would call geo-redemptive details than he is geopolitical details. It is not about the grasshoppers, you guys. It's about the grasshopper flicker. That is so not profound, but I, I pass it on to you. Now, why is biblical history important for us? Why is the Old Testament there? And we're going to go through five New Testament passages very quickly to show us why the, New, the Old Testament is important. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, I'll call the page numbers out. We'll start in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, page 885. Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And again, I don't have time to unpack all these, just real quick reading and barely any comments. Jesus speaking on the road to Emmaus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's that, you guys? That's the Old Testament, right? The Law of Moses, Prophets, Psalms. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Where do you find that? In the Old Testament. 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations. There's geo-redemption beginning from Jerusalem. There from the very mouth of Jesus is the hope of the gospel of Christ. And the foundation of the hope of the gospel of Christ is in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, Romans chapter 15, page 949. Love hearing those pages, y'all. Way to go. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What is the scriptures that you have hope? That's your Old Testament. So the Old Testament's given to us for endurance and encouragement and hope. May the God of endurance, verse 5, and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. We understand then that in Christ we are brought together and we learn from the, the teachings and the examples of the Old Testament how we ought to live. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, page 957. You can do a greater in-depth study than this. I'm obviously just kind of skimming across the top. Verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers who were under the cloud were all passed through the sea, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They ate the same spiritual drink. They drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Interesting. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Did you see that? They're all participating in spiritual endeavors, but God wasn't happy with most of them. It is possible to be a pretty good poser when it comes to spiritual things. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. Why? That we might desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters. As some of them, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. Now verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction on whom the end ages have come. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And so here you read the Old Testament and you are driven to purity and trust of God. It's amazing. First, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 996. Keep going, y'all. This is good stuff. I just told you that I, I'm doing good stuff. Anyhow, whatever. Uh, real, real famous passage on inspiration, uh, of why we treasure the Bible the way we do. Uh, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Think about that one phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God 
and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What scripture is Paul talking about? The great Jewish scholar. The New Testament wasn't even finished when he wrote this. I would say the focus of what he's saying there is the scriptures of the Old Testament are given to us. They are breathed by God for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Think about that. And so the Old Testament brings maturity and growth to our lives. Last one, Hebrews chapter 1, page 998. Let's see. Is number one at the beginning? It is, right? Just checking because I was at the end. Here we go. Verse four, 1 to 3, 4. Long ago and many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What is he describing there? He is describing the revelation that God gave in the Old Testament times. In many different ways God spoke in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, the one that he has appointed the heir of all things and through whom all things uh, he created the world. And the Son is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high and has become superior to the the angels in the name he's inherited as much better than theirs, which is an introduction to the book of Hebrews, which is actually where we're headed from this Old Testament study. But I give you five examples of how the Old Testament, God has given it to us in present day reality, to bring hope, harmony, purity, trust, mature, maturity, and growth, and to push us toward Jesus. And so it has great value for us as we study it. Now, a quick overview of the Old Testament, and I know I'm going back before I get to 1 Kings, and I'm going to get there, I promise, and uh, I will get you out of here for breakfast tomorrow. We're going to get this done. We're going to make this thing happen. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. Uh, they are broken up in the following order. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are five books. It's called the Pentateuch, the Law, the Torah. Take your pick. Joshua through Esther are called the historical books. There are 12 of those. We are dead center in the middle. We're on like book six right now in 1 Kings. And uh, we're going to finish those 12 books before we get to Hebrews, uh, 2 Kings next week, and then we'll get to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and so on. Uh, the, The third section, Job through the Song of Solomon, are called the poetical books. There are five of those. Four of those five are written during the historical time period. Solomon picked up his pen. We're going to meet him today in detail. He's frightening. Uh, I'll just give you a heads up. He's a scary dude. Um, And then David wrote a couple of songs that we would like to sing. Isaiah through Malachi, the prophetical books, there are 17 of those. And what we will see born today is basically the prophetic office takes the focal point at the second half of 1 Kings, and most of those prophets are found in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, so the, the prophets who actually wrote was during the time of the 2 Kings, and by the time you get through with this historical section, by the time we get through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, we will have covered the historical scope of the Old Testament And these other books find their footing in that historical setting. 
So that's a quick overview of the Old Testament. Um, background and structure of 1 Kings. When God called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he established what we would call the theocratic kingdom. It is a kingdom between God and man where God is the, actually the king. Um, it is uh, defined through the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. The Lord says that Israel is his treasured possession among all peoples. And uh, Exodus 15, 18, it says the Lord will reign forever. And so you have God as king of the nation of Israel established by his word for the world's good. If you remember, and I went back and, uh, from the very beginning of Abram's call in Genesis 12, and this, in my opinion, is the thread that carries you all the way to the book of Revelation, is that the Creator has a heart for His people that He made. The crowning achievement of His creation is humanity, and His love for that humanity never wavers even though the humans shake their fist at him, ignore him, say he doesn't exist, he continues to love them. That is the giant theme of the entire Bible. And if you're sitting here this morning questioning God, that's fine. He is not offended by your questioning. But what he will do is show you his grace and mercy over and over and over again. And so as we, we get to kings, that theocratic kingdom then is to put God on display. The plan is this. You're going to be my people. I'm going to send you as my people out into the world so all the nations can say what? Israel's God is the only God. He fights for them. He dries up the Red Sea so they can march across it. He dries up the Jordan River so they can march across it. He puts the sun backwards. He fights for them. He's not fair. He likes them the most. Dirty dog Israel. Right? And that the, but if they're thinking, they go, there's the one true God. That's the theocratic kingdom. But I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8 page 230 in your Bible, because the nation of Israel takes what I consider to be a, a nasty turn in their thinking. So from Abram, Moses, all the patriarchs, um, Joshua, the time of the judges, all the way up to the judge prophet Samuel, the Lord is king. But Israel commits a very foolish uh, endeavor in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old. It's, it's not a very good greeting, by the way. Just, hey, old codger. Your mind's barely functioning and your body's worse. Oh, I just paraphrased what my children say to me. <clears throat> um, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king uh, to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Watch this, you guys. Obey 
the voice of the people and all that you say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king. This is a huge turn in biblical history where instead of acknowledging God as their king, they have a desire that continues to this day in people's hearts, and it is to be like the nations. You see, we are the called out people now on the face of this earth. We are the ones God has said, you are my people. But how often do we wander into 1 Samuel 8 where we say, I want to be like my neighbor. I want to have the values of my neighbor. I want to spend my money like my neighbor does. I want to use my time like my neighbor does. I want to be like the nations. This is a very precarious position for the people of God. And it is a problem that we will see over and over. Look at verses 19 in the same chapter. The people refused a, a salmon. He tried to talk them out of it. There will be a king over us, they said, that we may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Go every man to his city. And Samuel's heartbroken. And I think God was more heartbroken. And I think he's heartbroken when we do the same thing today. When we see all that he has provided and all that he has done and all that he has given, and we look at him and go, I want to be like them. I don't want to be like your people. It is a very dangerous and precarious position. Now, <clears throat> let me chase the tangent for just a moment. Uh, in 19, I wrote the number down, 1981, a fellow named Joseph Aldridge wrote a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. And in that book, uh, Mr. Aldridge uh, really great book, by the way, um, challenged Christians to use their friendship relationships. Um, whatever. I can talk in the dark. I might be better in the dark, to be honest with you. You don't have to look at my, yeah, I almost said a bad thing. Um, <clears throat> and he challenged us to use our friendship relationships for the cause of the gospel. Don't just see them as your friend, your neighbor. There's someone to share Christ with. And Aldridge gave a brilliant example of the Christian's influence and the Christian's identity. And you have to keep those in balance. How do you do like Jesus did in Luke chapter 7 where he's called a friend of sinners and maintain your identity? If you lean too far into influence, you'll lose your identity. If you lean too far into identity, you'll lose your influence. You silo yourself. You don't have any friends that don't know Christ. You don't interact with your neighbors. They're creepy. Do you know that you're the creepy one in the neighborhood? Aim and I sit on our front porch. We look at our neighbors go by and we go, you know, we're the weird ones, Aim. They walk by and they whisper about us. And they go, that weird pastor on the corner. He's such a whack job down there. And he's always cutting his grass. You know, what's his, what's his problem? That's my big contribution to the neighborhood. I cut my grass. I, I, yeah, heroic stuff, right? Israel 
lost their influence because they compromised their identity. I think 1 Samuel 8 is one of the most tragic chapters we'll find in the whole Old Testament. So that earthly monarchy then is born. God says we'll give him a king. And that earthly monarchy finds itself in two forms. The first is what we call the United Kingdom. It starts with a king named Saul. And, uh, excuse me, (coughs) allergies. Uh, 1043 B.C. to uh, 1011 B.C., Saul reigns. He's the first king. He is a moral failure. He is a spiritual failure. He is a bad, ends up being a, a very poor king. He is followed by a guy named David. Isn't there a song, only a boy named David, only a little, yeah, anyhow. Um, And David becomes a huge focal point. By the way, Saul is covered in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 9 to 31. David is covered, the whole book of 2 Samuel, the whole book of 1 Chronicles basically covers David's life. There's a reason why we look at him and say he was amazing. And it is from the line of David that Jesus comes from and is promised from as your Messiah. Just a second. I'm going to enjoy a lovely beverage for a second. David is king for 40 years, 1011 B.C. to 971 B.C., and his son Solomon, again, we're going to look at him in detail in just a moment, takes over after him from 971 B.C. to 931 B.C., 40 years. Solomon's life is covered in 1 Kings 1 to 11, 2 Chronicles 1 to 9. 112 years of united kingdom from kings that really have been defined by God's choice. Solomon's failure, which we'll unpack in a moment, leads to what then is the divided kingdom. And that divided kingdom, uh, Israel is split into two warring factions. There's a civil disturbance there, and there's a north and a south. Is there always a north and a south? Shouldn't there be an east and a west? It just seems like there's always a north and a south. Anyhow, the northern kingdom lasts from 931 B.C. to 722 B.C. It is conquered by Assyria, and that's found in 2 Kings 17. And uh, 1 Kings 15 through 2 Kings really tells the story of the northern kingdom. They are apostate from the beginning. We'll look at them again in a little bit of detail in a moment. Um, and they are most unfortunate, 209 years of existence. The southern kingdom, 931 to 586 B.C., is conquered by Babylon, a fellow named Nebuchadnezzar. My Bible prof maybe learned how to spell that name. If you misspelled it on the quiz, you got the question wrong. That's what college professors do because they're evil. I don't know if you know that. They, you know, they major on the minor because they can and so they just irritate you to know that, but I can spell Nebuchadnezzar. It's a big thing, right? Um, that is in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles and lasted 345 years. I had in my notes right here, you have 15 minutes to cover all of that material because I got more stuff. I don't think I quite did it though, but I tried hard. That's bad. You ready? Let's go look at 1 Kings. There's your background. There's a little bit of a historical understanding of your Old Testament, how it's put together and why. And I want to talk about the United Kingdom's voice. 
And so again, the idea here is the nations will know there is one true God by what he does on behalf of his people and their king. And at the beginning of 1 Kings, then, uh, we go there and we meet Solomon, who starts in chapter 1 being appointed by his father, David, as the next king of the kingdom. Um, David dies in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, and Solomon is the new uh, the new monarch on the throne for everybody to follow. And if you go to chapter 3, verse 3, you hear this incredible testimony. Uh, this uh, shows Solomon's greatness, by the way. Uh, and it says, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Solomon loved the Lord. Verse 5, the same chapter, The Lord appears to Solomon. This is one of those areas, you guys, where this will be one of the few times God appears to a king. He will appear to him one more time in chapter 9, and then his appearance to king seems to disappear. Um, we'll get to that in a, in a second. But so as the Lord appears to him, and he says to him, what can I do for you? Verse 5, and Solomon says, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithful and righteousness, uprightness and a heart toward you. You've kept for him his great and steadfast love, given him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord, you have made your servant uh, king in place of father David, my father David. Although I'm a little child, I don't know what to do. And your servants in the midst of your people whom you've chosen. Give, here's verse 9. Here's his request. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern the people, that I may discern between good and evil for what is able to govern, who is able to govern this great people. I'm out of my depth. Please help. God does that. And it's pleased the Lord, verse 10, that Solomon asked for this. He says, because you've asked for this and not long life. You know, this is kind of like Aladdin, right? You rub the little thing, and then the Lord jumps out, and you go, well, what do you want? What would you ask God for? Under similar circumstances, what would your request be? Solomon asked for a wise heart. God goes, man, way to go, Solomon. Because you didn't ask for that, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. So, in verse 12, I give you a wise and discerning mind that none like you has been seen before you, and none will rise after you. I'll also give you what you have not asked for, riches and honor, like no other king has ever seen. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commands, I will lengthen your days. And Solomon meets God, and it's powerful. And the Lord favors him in every way. Go to chapter 4, verses 20 to 25. Um, I, I need to summarize this. Let me find the verse I really wanted. Oh... I probably should have just read it because I'm missing it. And anyhow, they have peace and prosperity everywhere. On all sides, the Bible says, that they have peace. In verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, every man vine under his trees, all the days of Solomon. The end of verse 24, he had peace on all sides. In my estimation, this is the high point of the United Kingdom. This is the greatest point. There's no wars. David was always at war. He's always fighting somebody. Solomon has peace. David's got blood. He's not allowed to build the temple. Solomon has wisdom. 
that's never been seen before because God gave it to him. Chapter 4, verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the sea so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east, all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than those guys. And verse 32, And he spoke 3,000 proverbs and he wrote a bunch of songs and they were all better than A.I., All the songs were better. And he spoke of trees. He was a botanist. And he he spoke of the hyssop. And he spoke of beasts. He was a zoologist. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And they heard of his wisdom. And guess what was being put on display by Solomon's great wisdom? His great God. And so Solomon is this shining example of what happens when God touches you in your life. Chapter 5 and 6, he builds the temple of the Lord uh, on his behalf. And in uh, 7, he builds his palace. And so he's an amazing architect as well. And and, in chapter 8, verses 10 uh, and 11, it says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priest could not stand because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The work of Solomon's hands pleased God. God gave him wisdom, and God inhabited him with his power. It's amazing. There's never been a better year in Israel than right here. Never been a better time, in my estimation, than right here. The great King Solomon. And the Lord inhabits and Solomon prays and in chapter 9, the Lord appears a second time. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the king's house, all that he desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. I've heard your prayers. I love what you're doing. And God is being put on display. Chapter 10 is one of those times where the Queen of Sheba hears the reputation of Solomon. She shows up to see if the stories were fabricated. Is this urban legend or is this reality? In verses 8 and 9, here's what she says. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and who has set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made your, you king that you execute justice and righteousness. Did you hear it? She saw the greatness of Solomon and credited his God. Exactly how it's supposed to work. This is what God had in mind. I wish First Kings ended right there. with the greatness of the Lord shining through the nation of Israel in this magnificently gifted man who loved the Lord. And then chapter 11 shows up. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. Do you remember what he said in verse, chapter 3 of verse 3? 
Did I said that backwards? Verse 3 of chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord with his heart. And now he loves women. Something changed, didn't it? Something moved in his soul. How did he get there? I, I don't know all the answers, but, but you'll notice that it then lists all these women, a, a Pharaoh, a Moabite, an Ammonite, an Edomite, a Sidonian, a Hittite. A Hittonite women. My guess is because he had 300 or 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's just representative. Now, this is not just sexual lust at an unbelievable degree. It may be that a little bit too. But this is political expediency. These marriages were to create alliances with these other countries. That's why they're listed in verse 1 like that. This is what's going on here. He has these relationships to build treaties and alliances with the nations. Guess what's going to happen? Solomon's going to trade in the Lord for the nations. He's going he's to forfeit the favor of God in order to have the favor of man. And so he loves these women, and what happens is they will, it's exactly what he's told not to do in verse 2, you don't do this, they will turn your heart away for their gods, and Solomon clung to these women, and he clung to these treaties. He started to believe that his peace was coming from political power instead of from divine assistance. Is there any lesson for us? You know, we are about to enter one of my least favorite years. It happens every four years. It's called a presidential election. It's evil. For a pastor, y'all aren't going to like each other. You're not going to like the candidates. You're not going to like that there's a donkey in the room. You're not going to like there's an elephant in the room. You're not going to like that they're all so old they don't know what day of the week it is. You're not going to like anything going on here. And you're going to be mad at me because you're going to want me to campaign for somebody. But I can tell you this, I've never done it in 35 years, never campaigned for anybody because of this. My hope is not in Washington, D.C. It has never been in Washington, D.C., and it will never be in Washington, D.C. We just spent time remembering our Lord on the cross. That's where our hope is. And if you don't think God would let the United States crumble, look what he did with his own people. Let's not get so high and mighty to believe that we are untouchable because we're Americans. We are God's favorite nation. Please, I beg you, stop. Solomon's failure is frightening. Verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as his father David. Now, I read that verse, and as an old guy, I went, oh. And I wrote in my notes, Solomon terrifies me. I ask you a question. 
How does the author of Proverbs that gives us wisdom and all of life become such a fool? By his own, by his own words, you go through, you could go Solomon, fool, study fool in the book of Proverbs, you'll find Solomon in his senior years being a fool. And I just wrote in my notes, it said, we must finish strong if you're an older person in the room. You're in the room. It's not over. Let's not hit the uh, coast button here. Let's not shift into neutral in our old age. Let's be productive for the cause of Christ. Let's follow our God hard all the way to the grave. Now, I'm going to throw an idea at you that I've been playing with. I haven't verified it by anybody else, so I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to throw an idea at you. David failed. Solomon was a failure. There are many ways to fail. There are lots of ways to fall short, right? There there are legion. There are hundreds of them. There's only one way to become a failure, and that is to pursue other gods and reject the one who has rescued you. That's failure. There are lots of ways. To, you think about that. I don't know if I'm right. I, I give it to you for your attention. And like I said, I, I didn't find anybody that agreed with me, but I wrote it down anyhow because I thought it made sense. Solomon commits the same mistake. He wants the nations more than he wants what God gave. And the sad story here is, In verse 9 of this chapter, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, who had appeared to him twice, and he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since you, since this has been your practice, did you notice that? It's not a one-time thing. That's failure. Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant as I've commanded, I will tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, I will not do it in your days, but I'll tear it out of the hands of your sons. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom. I will give my one tribe for your sake, David's sake, to the people I've chosen. God becomes Solomon's adversary. And by the end of chapter 11, we get to verse 41 to 43, and Solomon dies with no evidence that he ever turned back to his faith. There is some powerful things, there are, excuse me, some powerful things to think about. I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 9 for a moment, if you would. Um, Page 638 if you're following along. I didn't give my speech, you guys. If you're not familiar with the Bible, don't be embarrassed by that. We're all not familiar with stuff, too. We're all in a learning curve here. Come join the education train, if you will, and find out what God said in His Word. I think God risked a lot by blessing Solomon so much. Verse 23, the Lord, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Solomon had all three of those, didn't he? Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord. I practice love, justice, righteousness on the earth. I delight in these things. That's what we boast in. When God skills a person greatly, that person is at risk of believing that those skills are theirs. That, risk, that person is at risk of believing in themselves rather than him. We keep watching our Christian leaders, the, the celebrity pastors, fall flat on their face, don't we? And we're like, how did they get there? They did a Solomon. They, they started to believe in their own strength and their own power, their own wisdom, their own might, their own riches. And God will have to remove them because of that. All right, I have six minutes to cover the rest of First Kings. It's a little bit less than I wanted, but it was on purpose. So that's the United Kingdom. When Solomon dies, God does exactly what he says, and he tears the kingdom out of Solomon's son's hands. His son's name's Rehoboam. He gives some of the king uh, allegiances to a fellow named Jeroboam. I wish, you know, I always think about this stuff. I don't know if the Lord was making it memorable. Couldn't he pick a guy named like Charlie so I could remember the difference? Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and I, I go through the book, and I'm like, wait a minute, is he southern? Is he northern? I got so confused along the way. And uh, anyhow, uh, Jeroboam is the king of the northern tribe. Rehoboam, the king of the southern tribe. And they have a lot in common. And the, what they have in common is they silence the voice of God by their evil. So God's voice that is so powerful in the United Kingdom, where the Queen of Sheba comes and says, your God's really amazing, now goes to this divided kingdom where all they do is evil. And so uh, Jeroboam takes over the, uh, the northern uh, kingdom, and in chapter 12, uh, verses 28 to 30. Um, is that right? Oh, I'm in 2 Kings. I'm like, wow, that doesn't look right. I apologize. Let me get there. Chapter 12, verses 28 to 30. The king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. What's in Jerusalem, y'all? The temple. The presence of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant. We don't need to go there anymore. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other and put in Dan. This thing became sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one of those gods. It, it's kind of hilarious in a way, don't you think? Remember Moses on Mount Sinai and they built a golden calf. Jeroboam goes, I'm doubling down on that. Let's have two. One golden calf wasn't good enough to get you out of Egypt, but the two work together. We're good to go. And he leads his, his northern kingdom into idolatry and forgetting the Lord. And that transition follows the rest of the book of 1 Kings. 
I won't read them all. But in, in 14 uh, verses 7 to 9, it says that Jeroboam was evil above all who had preceded him. His son, Nadab, 1525, evil. 167, Baasha, evil. Elath, 1613, evil. Zimri, 1619, evil. Omri, 1625, evil. Go to 16, chapter thir- uh, verse 30. And we meet a guy named Ahab. And Ahab, in verse 30 of chapter 16, says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. This this country is a disaster for the cause of God. It starts with Solomon back here compromising his love, longing to be like the nations. Probably went all the way back to Samuel, I believe, where they rejected the Lord. And now it's evil upon evil upon evil. And the book of 1 Kings ends in chapter 22 with a guy named Ahaziah, and he's evil too. The northern kingdom is an abject disaster as a testimony for the greatness of God. In the south is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, back to chapter 14. And there's not a lot about the, that's in the Chronicles book more than the King's book. But uh, verses 21 to 24 of uh, chapter 14, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old. He reigned 17 years. The city of the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name. His mother's name was the Ammonite. Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins they committed, more than all their fathers had done before them. Both kingdoms are apostate. Both kingdoms have rejected the God of their fathers. And the voice of God is silenced. Because no one is showing up to see the great wisdom that came from God through a nation anymore. The Queen of Sheba is not going, I heard how amazing you are. The whole world said this, I heard how evil you are. Forgive me as a pastor, have you ever heard that about church? We are to be the voice and the light of God on this earth. How many times have I heard, it's always interesting when someone finds out you're a pastor and they didn't know it. It's usually a pretty not great moment, to be honest with you. <clears throat> and they almost always have a story about a church that fell apart or people who couldn't get along or the pastor who loved money or women more than he loved his Lord. And because of that, they, they point to the evil. What about Jim and Tammy Faye? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Good for you. And as the church apostatizes itself, and that we're caught up in sinful practices, the effort it takes to remove the sin from the church and restore the health of the church is exhausting. And it gets to the place where you think if you got the evil removed, well, we did our job. We are supposed to be shining outwardly, not focused inwardly on all the foolishness of our own lives, right? The nation of Israel crumbles before the world. And there's just evil 
everywhere. I have zero minutes left to cover the rest of this message, but I'm going to do it anyhow. You aren't surprised. In the midst of all this, you guys, the voice of God is never extinguished. It is never silenced. With the failure of the kings, with the failure of the nations to proclaim his name, he begins the office and the role of prophet in a new and dynamic way. And in 1 Kings, we are introduced to prophets in ways we had never been before. Chapter 11, there's a prophet named Ahijah. He shows up. Chapter 13, there's a guy who's not even named, just called the man of God. He has an unfortunate ending to his life because he didn't quite do what he's supposed to do. He became lion lunch. Chapter 14, Ahijah shows back up. Chapter 16, Jehu shows back up. Chapter 17 to 19, the most famous of them all, a guy named Elijah shows up. And then Elisha in chapter 19. The prophets become the voice of God because the kings weren't. You think we can muffle the voice of God? Listen, if our church won't be faithful, he'll raise another one up that will. If we won't do the job of shining, he'll find someone else who will. We are not all there is. And he brought these great prophets. I am embarrassed how little time I'm giving to Elijah. He deserved more. But in chapter, uh, he's the most famous. He confronts King Ahab. He duels in chapter 18 with the 400 prophets of Baal. He controls the weather. And eventually, in 2 Kings chapter 2, he doesn't even die. Goes to heaven. That's a pretty good guy. I'm embarrassed I didn't give him more time. He deserved more. He becomes the prototype of what prophets should be. And the whole Old Testament ends with the promise that Elijah is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to pave the way for the Messiah. And in Luke chapter 1, that Elijah guy is a fellow named John the Baptist. And he prepares the way for the Lord. And the Bible at the end of Malachi in the beginning of the New Testament says the same. He turns the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers in the spirit of Elijah. That's embarrassingly awful summary of a man who deserved more. Last thing, the voice of God was sometimes heard. In chapter 15, there's a king in Judah. His name is Asa. And the Bible says in verse 11, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You don't see that any other time in the book of 1 Kings. But I want to take you to chapter 21, and I want to introduce you to a scoundrel named Ahab. Ahab was about as evil as he comes. Talk about a, a, a poor chooser of wives. He married a girl named Jezebel. I'm wagering of all the babies that we will have in the near future, none of them will be named Jezebel. What do you guys think? Uh, it, 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 um, you're not naming your kid Jezebel. You're not naming your son Judas. 
You know, you're just not going to do that, right? Adolf, not a popular name for boys. Ahab is evil in every way. Elijah spends his prophetic career confronting him, and Ahab spends his life trying to kill Elijah and, and muffle the voice of God. And then you get to verse 25 of 1 Kings 21, and it says, There's none who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel's his wife incited. He acted abominably going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard the words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted and he laid in sackcloth and went about it dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen Ahab? Have you seen how he humbled himself before me? I will not bring disaster in his days, but his sons, I will bring disaster on his house. What is happening? No one had done more evil than Ahab, and God delighted in his repentance. It's the last we hear of him. We don't know what happened to him. I can't tell you the rest of the story. That's all we get. You can't commit enough evil to outrace the grace of God. You can't be so bad that God would be unwilling to touch your heart and turn you to truth. One of the beautiful things we find in this little book is the voice of God is never silenced. And when it is never silenced, sometimes people listen. And I would tell you today, we live in evil times, you guys. I, I know we're all struggling with it. I feel overwhelmed by it every day. I, I am saddened for my 14 grandchildren who will not have the chance to live in a time that is less evil than this. And God's voice is still real. And people's lives are still changed. Do you remember... The beginning of this message, the Old Testament provides what? What do we learn from these lessons? Hope and harmony and purity and trust, maturity and growth, and faith in Christ. The hymn writer said it this way, This is my Father's world, and though and to my listening ears all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world, I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas, His hands the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their Maker's praise. This is my Father's world, He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear Him pass, He speaks to me everywhere. This is, my, this is the verse I really wanted you to hear. This is my Father's world. And let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for the mighty reminder that your voice will never be extinguished no matter how great evil becomes. And that you even rescue the most evil people because your mercy is boundless. Your kindness knows no end. And we bow our heads in great praise that you would share that kindness, grace, and mercy with any one of us in this room. For we are indeed worms before you. Let us learn the lessons of your word and let us carry them out of this room to walk and live and breathe for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.